Father, we have opened your word. It is a holy word. It dropped from holy lips. It is a savory word. It pleases the tongue. It is a living word. It has power to bring life. It is a timely word. There are 2,000 years separating this text from our Mondays. But your word is never out of date. It was written as a timeless word. Help us to receive it as a light unto our path. Come work repentance into our souls. Grant an intense desire to eat your word. Confirm in us this day that it is a sustaining word. Sustain your church through this exposition. And Lord, do it for the glory of your name among the nations. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Have you ever wondered why Christianity is so difficult and hard for non-Christians to accept? This passage tells you why. Before God redeemed me, I thought Christians were morons. I perceived them as being weak emotionally, unable to handle life, and Christianity gave them a crutch to endure it. There was nothing about Christianity that was attractive to me. I thought the message was weird and the people were loony. The entire program was unimpressive. Today's text centers on the unimpressive. Here's how the text breaks down. The unimpressive message, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. The unimpressive people, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. The unimpressive message, the unimpressive people. You know why I, why I rejected Christianity for so many years? Because verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness, folly to non-Christians. It's insanity, absolute madness. The word folly in the Greek is moria, where we get our word moron. The cross is moronic to non-Christians. It's sure silliness to those hell-bent on destruction. Why? Why did non-Christians in this day view the cross as moronic? Well, death by crucifixion was especially despised and loathed in the ancient world. One Roman orator, Cicero, wrote, and I quote, The very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears, end quote. No one brought up a cross in polite company. Crucifixion was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists, never for a citizen. Violent criminals, aliens, barbarians, yes. Never Romans. It was illegal to crucify a Roman. The cross was beneath them. Crucifixion was a wretched torture. And it had the utmost shame and horror attached to it. 
It was regarded as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. A bleeding, naked, brutalized person hanging on a tree? It was repugnant to ancient sensibilities. It carried unspeakable stigma. The very idea that this heinous act could bring humanity to God is unimaginable. The cross is foolishness to the perishing. They cannot believe this is the way of salvation. It's simply inconceivable. It's folly to sophisticated Corinthians. It sounds bananas to them. To regard something as folly means to think of those who follow it as morons. To look at them like they are madmen, out of their minds. In Rome, there's a well-known graffiti that depicts an ancient Christian, Alex Aminos, worshiping. He's worshiping a figure with the body of a man and the head of a donkey. The inscription reads, Alexa Minos worships his God. That graffiti shows how the world views us and our Christ on the cross. He's a donkey. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is more than a philosophical or religious system. It is the power of God. Why do we Christians see the cross as the power of God? Because nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Christ's death on the cross was an act of God's power to save fallen human beings. Here's the truth of verse 18. The cross divides men. The cross divides men. The cross becomes a sifting criterion. There are two evaluations of the same event. The cross is offensive and unacceptable to some. They reject the good medicine. The cross is beautiful and comforting to others. They drink the good medicine. The cross divides humanity into two groups. Those being saved and those perishing. Two ways of looking at the same cross. There are two ways to view the cross. And they lead to two different destinations. There are two ways to view the cross and they lead to two different destinations. All of you fall into one of these two classes. You will either walk out of this building perishing or you will walk out of this building being saved. You will either walk away saying, I've never heard anything so stupid in my life. Perishing. Or you will walk away saying, I've never seen anything more beautiful in my life. Being saved. Notice the verb tense. Just as non-Christians are in the process of perishing, the Christian is in the process of being saved. 
Throughout Paul's writings, he breaks down salvation into three tenses. A well-known analogy could help us here. Picture people being rescued from a sinking ship by a lifeboat. They have been saved. They are being saved. And they will be saved. Firstly, those lifted into the lifeboat have been saved. They have been rescued from peril. Secondly, as the lifeboat moves to the shore, they are in the process of being saved. Thirdly, they look ahead with longing to the lifeboat reaching the solid shore where they will finally be saved. Salvation has a beginning, middle, and end. So it's not theologically inaccurate for Paul to say we are being saved. Also, non-Christians are perishing long before they ever enter into hell. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Notice the first phrase, for it is written. Paul quotes from Isaiah 29, 14. Paul is giving them new revelation by quoting old revelation. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The Corinthians fixation on appealing wise to the culture is being attacked here. God directly contradicts worldly wisdom the worldly wisdom the Corinthians loved so much. Intellect was the primary cultural currency. There was a, a cultural obsession with intellect. Satan had seduced them into boasting of their intelligence. The learned, the educated, the traveling philosophers, God will destroy their wisdom. God said, I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. He nullifies the wisdom of the culture. Church, this world is a passing show. And its wisdom passes with it. The message of the cross defies worldly wisdom. In fact, what God achieved through Jesus on the cross transcends human comprehension. What God achieved through Jesus on the cross transcends human comprehension. God has a different understanding of wisdom than the one found in the culture's storyline. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul asks three stinging and sarcastic questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Where are these guys in the churches that I've planted? I don't see them. Paul challenges the church to produce their scholars, skeptics, and scribes. Scholars, please stand up. Crickets. Scribes, please raise your hand. No hands. Skeptics, please state your debates. No word. He does this with both irony and a bit of sarcasm. The best specimens of mankind are missing in the church. 
The intellectuals from the public square aren't in the local church. Where, where are all the famous orators? If God is going to make Christianity respected in Corinth, he needs these guys. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God offers a new paradigm. It's an upside-down wisdom. He actually turned the tables on Corinth, turned conventional wisdom on its head. The cross turns their reality upside down. Understand, it's not that God made their wisdom appear foolish. No, he made it foolish. The vaunted wisdom of the world, God marked incorrect with his red pen. Scholars, scribes, and skeptics, why have these three groups failed to be saved? Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, scholars, scribes, skeptics, the world did not know God through wisdom. How do you know God? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The world did not know God through wisdom. You can't philosophize your way into salvation. No one has ever done that. Not any of the luminaries from the Greek pantheon of philosophers. If human wisdom is so great, why can't it save you? Or make you live forever? You can have more degrees than Fahrenheit, but they will not get you to God. Even the smartest among us must have divine revelation to be saved. Human wisdom will not get us there. These groups may be applauded in society, but it gets them nowhere in their relationship with God. It's not about IQ, IQ scores. That doesn't get you in. God has taken all human brilliance and shown its utter bankruptcy and foolishness. As hard as they try to raise themselves to the heights of wisdom, they could never reach the heights of salvation. We, we need salvation, not information. We need a savior, not an educator. They prized wisdom the way our generation prizes reason and science. You might ask, Kyle, why is God treating human wisdom so rudely? Because humans are not saved by what they know, but by who they believe in. You do not receive salvation by exercising wisdom. Salvation comes to those who believe. You do not receive salvation by exercising wisdom. Salvation comes to those who believe. Present tense is the verb believe. They are still believing. Gordon Fee points out, a God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. By human standards, God's wisdom is foolishness. So they spurn it. The wisdom of the world opposes God's wisdom revealed in Christ. 
And this means there is no way you can credit yourself with any bit of your salvation. You, you were never smart enough to seize it. You must lay your genius and intellectual achievements down at the foot of a horrible instrument of execution and say, here and only here may I find forgiveness of sins. Verse 21b. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The King James Version translates this verse in a way that's resulted in a lot of bad sermons. Notice, it's not foolish preaching, but the foolishness of preaching. It's the content of the preaching, not the form. Our culture finds the preaching of the cross either irrelevant or offensive, just like the Corinthians did. And unfortunately, some pastors, not wanting to sound foolish... Try to make it sound smart. Try to make the cross appealing to our Corinthian culture. Adorn the cross. Make it more attractive. We don't need to surround the cross with roses. We can leave it bloody. It wasn't meant to be clean. It's not sterile. It's dangerous to think you are clever. To translate the cross to be a little more sophisticated. Don't ever think, I need to make this gospel sound more intelligent. Don't think you need to communicate it in a certain way that will be respected in society. A way that wins likes, comments, and subscribers. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Paul divides mankind into two great ethnic groups. Maybe you've been confused by that when you've heard preaching before. This is a common division in scripture. God picked one little nation as his pet nation and all the others are called Greeks or Gentiles. For Jews demand signs. They are sign seekers. Jesus' own people didn't understand their own sacred scriptures. They were always clamoring for miraculous signs in order to validate that Jesus was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. They always wanted Jesus to perform miracles like a circus seal doing tricks. Jesus never gave the Jews signs on demand because he knew they had the wrong expectation for him. They wanted a military savior, one who would make Rome tremble. This verse is for all of you who say, well, if God is real, I want to see something. <laughs> Jesus doesn't cater to your wants and expectations. Look at the cross. That is all you need. Greeks seek wisdom. They are lovers of wisdom. Greeks came to regard sages, scholars, and philosophers as many gods because they told you how to interpret life. Is our modern sense of the word wisdom sufficient to understand what Paul's talking about here? Paul's favorite word, Sophia, wisdom, is used 17 times in three chapters. Wisdom is a general way of assessing life. 
wisdom to them was able to make sense of life. Not book smarts, but a coherent worldview. The solution to life's problems were to be discovered through means of human wisdom. But God didn't save us by sending down a teacher to educate us, or a politician to reform us, or a life coach to help us get it together, or a military leader to protect us. He sent down a substitute to die for us. Greeks want evidence of wisdom. They couldn't accept the message of the cross because it defied logic. Greeks search for wisdom and insight, a distinction, an evolution of human thought. They are looking for proof. I have to understand everything before I become a Christian. Well, then knowledge is your God. You're starting at the wrong place. You don't start with your questions. You start at the cross. It's not that Paul can't reach the philosophers of his time. The whole tradition of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Paul was well versed in all of that. Before he arrived in Corinth, he went toe-to-toe with the Stoics and Epicureans. He knows that in and out. He aced philosophy 101. He, he, He can reach those intellectual levels. The problem is, Salvation isn't up there. The Grecians loved all philosophers except the true one. To know Christ is the best of all philosophy, the highest of all sciences. Two groups, Jews and Greeks. All intellectual for one, all experiential for the other. Lovers of wisdom, Lovers of experience. You have represented here non-religious and religious. The Greeks, non-religious. The Jews, religious. Both lost. One wanted to be convinced miraculously. The other wanted to be convinced mentally. These two groups represent all unbelieving mankind. Both are looking for salvation in the wrong place. There is a third option. It's not signs or wisdom. It's the cross. You can be an educated fool. A learned idiot. And that's what you are when you reject Christ. You can be religiously lost. And that's what you are when you demand God to perform for you. Is there anyone here that can testify that someone philosophized you to Christ? (laughs) No. Don't maintain the delusion that when everything is explained to you, then you will believe. You cannot reason yourself to God. You cannot reason yourself to God. You don't need a teacher. You need a redeemer. Jesus didn't save the world through philosophical wisdom. Salvation wasn't figured out by a bunch of philosophers who put their heads together. While they pondered life in the clouds, Jesus came down below the clouds to earth and salvation appeared to a bunch of uneducated shepherds. Verse 23. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Underline the word preach. No self-respecting orator would ever refer to what he did as preaching. That's a base term. That's below the intellects of the day. That's just Caruso. That's just heralding. You're not creating information. You're just passing along received information. By the way, this must have seemed like a contradiction. A crucified Christ. There's a strangeness in this message. You hear the strangeness when you change the method of death. We preach Christ executed. We preach Christ hanging from a noose. We preach Christ asphyxiated. Preaching your Messiah as crucified was like saying the victor has been vanquished. The market has collapsed. How is this good news? Crucified Messiah. That's a contradiction of terms. That's like fried ice. Frozen steam. Upward decline. It's anti-rational. And a stumbling block to Jews. This is an affront and an outrage to the Jews because they wanted a political messiah. They wanted a messiah to come in power and splendor and put his foot on the neck of Rome. They couldn't conceive of a messiah who died by the hands of Rome. The word stumbling block in verse 23 can be translated scandal. This is where we, we get the phrase the scandal of the cross. In the Greek, scandalon. It's scandalous. It's grossly offensive. It was vulgar, insane, and utterly unimaginable. Plain and simple, it was a message to be rejected and ridiculed. Our Messiah hung on a tree like a horse thief? Stop! It's insulting to link the Messiah to weakness. In Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho, this took place in the second century, Rabbi Trypho, not too, too far after this text, Rabbi Trypho remains unpersuaded by Justin's attempts to prove from Daniel 7 that Jesus was the Messiah. So Trypho responds, Sir, these and such passages of Scripture, talking about Daniel 7, compel us to await for one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as the son of man. But this, your so-called Christ, is without honor and glory, so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. End quote. We are following someone executed as a state criminal. That's a major stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul interchangeably uses Greek and Gentile. It scandalized the Jews and seemed ridiculous to the Gentiles. It's folly. It's folly, I tell you. It's folly. A father sending his son to the cross? 
It's cosmic child abuse. It's twisted. It's lunacy. Why aren't you shocked by this? They wrote off the message of the cross not as eccentric, harmless folly, but as dangerous, almost deranged stupidity. Some people gag at the cross, but others run to it. Verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Church, if everyone finds the cross nonsense, how do some come to believe? The call. The call. God's call is effective. Everyone he calls believes. God's call is effective. Everyone he calls believes. Why do saved people view the gospel favorably? Why don't we see Christ as folly? Because we've been called. There are three groups in verses 23 and 24. The Jews, the Gentiles, and the called. Or to be more precise, the non-called Jews, the non-called Gentiles, and the called Jews and Gentiles. The ancient world used various polarities to represent mankind. Roman and barbarian, slave and free, male and female. Here we have the ethnic division, Jews and Gentiles. Meaning there is no racial distinction in who God calls. He calls some from all polarities. Verse 24, Christ the power of God and the... Wisdom of God. Calling Jesus wisdom is one of the most important developments in early Christological thinking. This links Jesus to Proverbs. He's the wisdom of God. He's the, he's the foolishness of the world, but the wisdom of God. Verse 25. For the foolishness of God, that's what they dub foolishness. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. N Notice this radical antithesis. God's folly outsmarted human wisdom. Those stating that the cross is foolishness ironically reveal their own foolishness. Paul contrasts wisdom and foolishness 21 different times. It's a minor theme in the book. If God were able to have any sort of foolishness, it would be wiser than the wisdom of men. Apparently, the most ridiculous thing God ever did is, as it turns out, far smarter than the cleverest thing that human beings have ever come up with. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Rather than swinging a sword, he carries a cross. The weakness of the cross shows what true strength is. God's so-called foolishness, God's supposed weakness, this is the great reversal. Human strength can't compete with God's weakness. The gospel is stronger than man's strength. Keith and Kristen Getty wrote a song entitled, The Power of the Cross. There's a line in it, 
This is the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. God destroys the wisdom of the wise and frustrates the cleverness of the clever. And he does it through the weakness at the cross, which proves to be the most powerful act humankind has ever experienced. When Christ became sin for us, he unleashed a power greater than creation power. Cross power. The unimpressive message, now the unimpressive people. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Christianity not only has an unimpressive message, but it has unimpressive people. Paul says to the church at Corinth, Do you need some examples? Look in the mirror. You are living proof of this. You are not impressive. There aren't many mighty intellects among you. You're not influential in society. You have nothing going for you. I didn't pull you out of the top drawer. Think back when I called you. You were not the cream of the crop. Or... or, or the aristocracy in Greece. You are not a high-powered group of movers and shakers. You're a bunch of losers. You are not noble. You didn't come from high social standing because of your birth or last name. You are not mighty. You didn't possess power or authority. The members of the church at Corinth didn't make the who's who. They made the who's not. God chose the leftovers of the world. Let's take a moment to look around this room. <laughs> the same could be said of us. It looks like some of you just washed up on shore. <laughs> there aren't any first round draft picks here. God sings solo. He doesn't need any backups. You don't need to be impressive. He is. He's not a God who just grabs for the elite and deserving. By and large, the people around you are not impressive. He didn't pick the sharpest tools in the shed to work with. He uses the most helpless material to build the most beautiful bride. They were not wise by human standards. They had no clout. They were not influencers. They were weak, vulnerable, poorly educated, unimpressive they were not saved by being born into the right kinds of families they came from dysfunctional families they didn't have great dads or dads at all and let me talk to those of you who are non-christians let me say this to you non-christians we christians are not impressive people we christians are not impressive people we are a bunch of oddballs. Celsus, a Greek philosopher in the second century, made a career out of criticizing Christians. His attack was based on how few intellectuals there were among Christians 
and how poor and illiterate and stupid and vile they were. I'll read his degrading comments to you. It starts out like a newspaper ad. Let no cultured person draw near, none wise and none sensible. For all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, let him come boldly to become a Christian. He then breaks from the newspaper ad. We see them in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. They are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp or worms convening in mud. Non-Christian, we Christians are worms convening in mud. We don't claim to be anything other than the dregs of society. We are not trying to impress you. We aren't putting up the doctors before you and the PhDs hoping you will respect us. We don't put pretty people all on the platform so you will think, wow, they are a nice looking bunch. Look at us. We ain't pretty and we ain't trying to be. Look around, the fancy people aren't here. Those that the world esteems brilliant aren't in this room. Our social standing isn't impressive. We do not seek to impress you with the importance of men and women who have become Christians. We don't parade athletes, media personalities, or singers before you and say, Look, look who else became a Christian. That, that, that validates us. We don't want you to think any more of us than Kelsus thought of second century Christians. The church is made up of weird people. Some of the most awkward people I've ever met are members of this church. When God chose us, he didn't choose the best and brightest. He chose to set his love on undeserving, unclean, unlearned, unimpressive people. We are worm-like. We are frogs holding a symposium in a swamp. Now, some of you Christians may not like this talk. <laughs> Who gave you permission to talk about me like that? Well, I have something for you. Christian, do you think God called you because you are an impressive person? Do you think God called you because you are an impressive person? You cannot boast of any pedigree. There was nothing attractive in you that moved God to choose you. You're all a bunch of nothings. We are the nothings. These are the very people God chooses. The choice is very strange. Very strange indeed. Even in heaven, it will be the subject of eternal wonder. Not because of you, but in spite of you, God saved you. This is how he works. If it were the other way, the wise might have concluded that they forced their way to heaven by their wit. God, God's choices are directly contrary to human choices. So thank God for divine choice. 
I just want to make sure the elect don't become elite in their minds. I want to make sure the elect don't become elite in their minds. Do you think God looked down at you and said, mm, look at her. She has a YouTube channel. Let me snatch her up. She's got a lot to offer. Wait a minute, are her shoes matching her purse? Who are you kidding? You can't boast of anything. What did you contribute to your salvation? The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. Don't start taking credit for something God did. You had nothing to do with his choice of you. It harms the soul of the boaster to attribute even a minuscule portion of your salvation to yourself. Now, I don't want to neglect one little word in the verse. The word is many. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It does not say not any were of noble birth. It says not many. So, so the great ones are, are not altogether shut out. God allowed for a few exceptions by saying not many instead of not any. Selena Hastings, the countess of Huntington in the 1700s, used to say she thanks God for the M in many. She was a very wealthy woman, noble birth. I was saved by an M, she would proclaim. The point of this is that generally speaking, the church is made up of outcasts, not the super brilliant. God majors on the below average people. Verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shames those the world considers strong and wise. Most people in the church at Corinth belonged to a class of people that the educated elite regarded as foolish. Charles Spurgeon, the Spurge, said, and I quote, For one wise man to confound another wise man is remarkable. For a wise man to confound a foolish man is very easy. But for a foolish man to confound a wise man, oh, this is the finger of God. Two times in this verse, God chose each time God chooses a certain type of people. He chose the opposite of what the world esteems. His election is on purpose and not in accord with the world's choosing. Now I know I'm hitting this again because the verse hits it again. Paul says the same things three different ways all throughout this section of verses. If you think, Kyle, you're not as logical as linear in your progression today. It's because the text isn't linear. It keeps circling back around. So since Paul hits it again, let me hit it again. Your salvation is because God chose you, not because there was something worthy in you. Leon Morris brings out a needed clarification, especially in our build-your-self-esteem church culture. Morris says, God does not choose those whom the world think are foolish and weak. God chooses those who are actually foolish and weak. See the sovereign purpose of God in his choice. No one can boast in why God chose them. 
And this is not just a New Testament thing. God elected Israel. They were not an impressive nation. God's choice of you predates the existence of you. I don't want to rock your world. Many of you are new in the faith and you should celebrate this. God's choice of you predates the existence of you. Before you were made, God saw you in, in your sin and rebellion and he graciously set his favor on you. This is God's electing grace. He summons to salvation. This electing love is absolutely unconditional. We were not yet created. It's not based on a condition we met. Verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God will bring the world's wisdom to nothing, to render it idle, uh, inoperative, completely ineffective. As it turns out, the Corinthians were not foolish for believing the gospel. The others were foolish for not believing it. True wisdom is not about intellectual ability, but correct soteriology. Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. They had little status in the world, verse 26. God gave them a new status, verse 30. He reverses their previous status of nothings. They owe to him every dimension of their salvation. Paul summarizes what Christ provides in three words. Righteousness, redemption, sanctification. Righteousness, right standing before God. Count Zinzendorf calls this our glorious dress, righteousness. Redemption, freedom from slavery. Reaching back into Exodus language here. God liberating rebellious sinners by forgiving their sin. Sanctification speaks of positional holiness. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. If someone says, I'm trying to be a Christian. You don't understand Christianity. You were either in or out. How did you get into Christ? Because of him. They are God's people, not because of themselves, but because of him. He's the source and the cause of them being in Christ. Verse 31. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast is a predominantly Pauline word in the New Testament. D.A. Carson says, there is a certain boasting permitted to Christians. Indeed, mandated for them. To stick with the Greek context, Odysseus glories in his cunning... Achilles in his strength, but Christians find their ground of delight in the Lord. What was once foolish to us, a crucified Christ, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. If you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God, 
If you're going to start bragging, brag on Jesus. You have nothing else in which to boast. Boasting in your degrees? Boasting in your wealth? You have nothing to boast in other than this Christ and his cross. Father, what do we have that we have not received? We are beggars and you are our benefactor. The cross used to be beneath us. But now it is before us. It used to be folly to us. But now it's power to us. It used to be unimpressive. But now we can't help but to stand in awe of it. Father, the people who embrace your Christ used to be unimpressive to us. But now we call them brothers and sisters. My, my. How you can take the unimpressive and make it gloriously impressive. Help us to boast in the cross this week. Amen.